Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey folks, the Other People Podcast is offered freely. All episodes of this program are available for free, nearly 600 episodes and counting. If you would like to support this podcast, your support makes a difference. You can do that at patreon.com slash other PPL pod. That's patreon.com slash other PPL pod. Thanks. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person and just one time. Hello, everybody. What's going on? This is Brad Listy. Hello. How are you? This is the Other People Show. I'm Brad Listy. I'm in Los Angeles. I hope you're doing well. I have Karen Stefano on the program today. She has a memoir out from Rare Bird Books. It is called What a Body Remembers, a memoir of sexual assault and its aftermath. It is the official June pick of the Nervous Breakdown Book Club. TheNervousBreakdown.com is my online culture magazine and literary community. It is edited by Joey Grantham. If you want to contribute, you can reach out to Joey Grantham. And uh, the site has its own monthly book club. I interview the book club authors on this podcast. It makes for an enriching cultural experience. If you would like to learn more about the Nervous Breakdown Book Club, just go to thenervousbreakdown.com. So this has been an unusually busy week. And this is like the tail. I'm recording this at the tail end of a very unusually busy week. All of my weeks are busy. I feel like that's the case for all of us or most of us, the velocity of life, especially when you're in middle age and you have kids and you're just dealing with all that comes with that and trying to earn a living and do what you need to do. It comes at you fast this week, extra fast, but rewarding. I got a lot done. I have that feeling, this feeling of accomplishment. And you're catching me now as I talk into the microphone at the very end, this is like the last thing on my to-do list. And then I think I'm going to have some time to just like sit in a dark room and have a word with myself. So before we get to Karen Stefano and her memoir, I'm going to briefly venture into the realm of uh, politics and public morality. I, I feel like I have to. I just want to say quickly that uh, 
I am kind of going to recommit myself and redouble my efforts to engage and to try to find ways to take action because I feel like what's happening, it's, it's, it's ratcheting up. The insanity seems to be ratcheting up. I am particularly moved by what is happening at the border and uh, this family separation policy and these camps that are being set up where there's no toothpaste or medicine or soap. This is an abomination. And to not speak out about it feels to me uh, wrong. But speaking is not the only thing. I think there's got to be action. I just donated some money. I'm going to try. I think jabbering on Twitter or social media and speaking out, you know, a lot of people poo-poo that. I think there's something to it. I think it, it actually does matter. I think these little micro-expressions in the aggregate have an impact. We have an impact on our social circles. So if you're silent, don't be. Be willing to be annoying, you know? Try to engage respectfully if you're, you know, if you've got a uh, MAGA people in your orbit or people who, for some reason, don't have any problem at all with what's happening. But don't let their indifference lead to yours. You know what I'm saying? Okay? So, end of speech. But uh, we have to step up. That's my feeling. Otherwise, I read what? I read like three books this week. I've conducted five interviews this week, including some uh, very interesting ones that have stayed with me and that I imagine will stay with me. So much to look forward to in the weeks ahead. I'm not going to spoil it. I'm going to try to kind of uh, build a little bit of mystery and drama into the podcast. Stay tuned. New episodes drop every Wednesday. I think you guys know that. The show's website is otherppl.com. And you can always follow the show on Twitter, which is where the uh, the social media thing happens for the podcast, at otherppl. My guest is Karen Stefano. Her new book, What a Body Remembers, a memoir of sexual assault and its aftermath, is available now from Rare Bird Books. It is the official June pick of the Nervous Breakdown Book Club. It was great to meet Karen and to get a chance to talk to her about a difficult part of her life and uh, an experience and its aftermath that she rendered with a lot of grace. So here we go. This is my conversation with Karen Stefano. In 1984, I was a 19-year-old sophomore at UC Berkeley. And for a variety of reasons, uh, one being I needed a job, I got a job uh, with the campus police department and I wore a full-blown cop uniform and all the regalia minus the gun um, and baton. And the only thing that didn't identify me as a real cop was a little tiny patch on my sleeve that said aid. And my job was to patrol this campus, this huge campus and surrounding areas. Um, it's a highly crime-ridden city, and it was my job to walk women home. Uh, there was a line you called 642 walk. So that was my job. I finished a shift one night, uh, go in the locker room, take off my cop clothes, put on my regular student clothes, sling my backpack over my shoulder and I walk home alone 
in darkness close to midnight. And then at the threshold of my apartment, I'm assaulted at knife point. Um, And it was a brief struggle, a terrifying struggle. Uh, I was not raped. It was an attempted rape. Um, So I'm grateful for that. Uh, But it changed my view of the world. And I had to save face by going back out there and still patrolling these dangerous streets. And my only protection was my uniform. Okay, because I was going to say, you don't have the gun. You don't have the baton. Right. And you're charged with walk, you know, walking people home safely. You don't have mace. Do you have anything? Um, I have a police radio. That's it. Um, yeah, and I have my my skills. Uh, but you know, and I, you know, and and a few times I would show up, and women would say to me, you know, what are you going to do? <laughs> and and I said, listen, you can call for if you want a mail. That's that's fine. I'm here. I've got this radio. I've been doing this for a while you're good. Uh, but I'm, but I'm sort of digressing because another piece of the story obviously is the aftermath of the assault and how I don't cope at all. And, uh, you're speaking in the past tense, in the past tense, in the past tense. Um, and going through the crash course in the criminal justice system, even though I worked for a police department, I had uh, only a television-informed sense of what happened in the criminal justice system. Oh, my God, now I've got to go testify at this thing called a preliminary hearing. A year later, I get a subpoena uh, to come testify at my attacker's jury trial. And so it was, it was extremely traumatic. And then there are many twists and turns in the story, and I don't want to give any spoilers, but... One of the paradoxes in my life story is that after graduating from Berkeley, I went on to law school always with the intention of becoming a prosecutor and putting bad guys away. And ironically, through twists of fate, I became a criminal defense lawyer right. and representing people who had committed some pretty heinous crimes, as heinous as the as the one committed against me. And so, and, and I, if you read the book, I think it makes perfect sense why that ultimately was the path that I took, but it's, but it's an interesting paradox. Yeah. I don't want to like ruin the book for people, but you know, this is such a, it's such a central, uh, it's decentral of like, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, organizing principle almost of your life. Right. Uh, right. Which I don't know if you necessarily knew until many years after the assault. It's kind of one of those things you learn retroactively once you're kind of reassembling yourself. But the the attack itself, uh, which you render uh, in the book so um, vividly, Mm -hmm. that is some terrifying stuff. (laughs) So, and and like, you know, you said earlier... um, you had no gun, no baton, but you did have your skills. Does that mean like, are you Taekwondo? Do you have any like physical? Absolutely. Absolutely nothing. And as I say in the book, uh, five foot two, I range between 105 and 110 pounds. I'm not someone who's intimidating by, by any sense. I don't know about that. I'm a little intimidated. (laughs) Um, but 
you're, you get trained to assess people. You get trained uh, to identify people. Um, like meeting you, it's still it's still in my blood. Like meeting you, I'm like, okay, blue eyes, uh, short hair, uh, black Nike t-shirt, and and I do that just immediately still. And I think what, what's the vibe I'm giving off? Am I good? <laughs> it's a good vibe. Okay. It's a good vibe. Um, uh, you know, the black's working for you. Okay. Okay. So, um, you've got that, you've got your radio, you know, protocols, you've been trained in like emergency, um, like, like what you're supposed to do in an emergency, the mm -hmm. call out signal, they can trace those radios. Like if you call out, they know where you are. Oh yeah. It's just, it's just like a, a police officer saying, you know, I'm in, in cop lingo, in code, I'm pulling over this white Buick at the corner of Gower Street and Rosemont. So you would have to call it out. Like they can't just like if you were just like help, they wouldn't know where you were. You would have to tell them. Uh, yeah, you would. You'd okay. have to. Yeah, there was nothing. You know, and again, this is 1984 technology too. So um, the appropriate thing, let's say, you know, if I was on campus and I was in uniform and I was being hurt. Um, uh, I would, you know, press down the button on the radio and say one five five eleven ninety nine, and then try to give some semblance of my location as as quickly as possible. One five five being my badge number, eleven ninety nine being the code for officer needs help, and that's like, it, and I need fucking help now. Something oh. something's going down. Okay, and then you know just give some kind of you know semblance of your location. You know, north side of Sproul Hall, and then. The cavalry comes, but again, an important uh, another paradox, I guess. Again, is that I wasn't in uniform when I was assaulted. I was in my regular nineteen-year-old sophomore clothes with my lavender backpack, uh, just just a student. Super intimidating, a lavender backpack. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I get that a lot. Hey, everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. So, uh, you know, you are going up to your um, apartment door mm -hmm. and you're keying the door. This guy had been clearly like watching. I, I, I still don't, I don't know. Um, I actually wasn't yet key in the door i just turned into my hallway okay uh going into my basement level apartment and i heard footsteps 
uh, running down the sidewalk. Again, police training. I turn. I look. I assess him. Uh, I categorize him. I decide, you know, it's just a guy running down the street. This is Berkeley. A guy running down the street at midnight is no big deal. And then I heard the footsteps turn, change course, and they were coming into the hallway. And that's when I saw the knife in his hand. Oh, and, my God. Yeah. And what do you do? I mean, I know you write about this. I don't want to spoil too much, but yeah. this is like, this is sort of the uh, inciting incident to use storytelling terms. So I guess right. we can we can share this and then, you know, I'll let people read to find out what happens. Um, but, you know, we like to think that if something like this happens, we would have presence of mind, we would respond like a hero. Right. <laughs> you know, you play these movies in your mind. Like, this right. is what I would do. And, uh, you know, you imagine... I'd like, kick the shit out of him. Right. Nobody's going to do that to me. Or, I, yeah, or, you know, and yeah. you're right outside your door. Yeah. You know, there's people, you live in an apartment building. This is not like a single family unit. This is an apartment complex, so there's other people around. Right. In very close proximity. Um, and so, like, when it's actually happening... Like you freeze, like you go speechless, you know, like your physiology. Can you talk a little bit about your particular experience? Like, yeah, and I, I, I imagine every person who experiences an assault experiences it differently. I can share my physiological experience. Um, uh, the the number one emotion, and I share this in the scene, was this. This is happening. It, it was there was just such denial, but it was like I, a voice in my head kept saying, "Karen, this is really happening. This is really happening. Do something." But there was nothing to be done, and uh, it's. You know, I don't know how to describe it. Obviously, adrenaline. Shock. Uh, shock. Um, uh, there was the the debate in my mind where if I had an opportunity to scream because he had one hand over my mouth and the knife at my neck. And there there was a debate. Now, if I get a chance to scream... Do I scream and he slits my throat or do I not scream and who knows what's going to happen next? Right. And then somehow we were struggling and his hand did eventually slip and it wasn't even a, there was no decision. It was just like yeah, scream how, how you, bloody uh, fucking murder. Right. You describe it in the book as like, this is the sound of terror. Yeah. Is that what you say? Yeah. Something like terror I realize has a sound. Yeah. Yeah. I can imagine. Yeah. And, uh. Thank God you screamed. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, um, and again, no spoilers for, for later in the book, but uh, needless to say, uh, when I tracked him down uh, 30 years later, uh, I realized how lucky I was. Yeah. Well, you know, there's a book. God, I'm going to forget it, too. It's sitting on my nightstand. Written by a British woman. But she's had, I'm going to paraphrase this terribly, but she has had, I want to say, like seven near-death experiences in her life. Like wow. an un unusual number of near-death experiences. And one of them, which opens the book, which I read in bed 
and like I couldn't continue because it was so like I can't read scary shit before bed uh-huh. <laughs> uh, uh-huh. or watch like violent television shows. It just gives me um, bad dreams or something. And yeah, makes me restless. But um, she was talking about how she went hiking, and she was by herself. Uh, she was on some like you know uh, traveling experience when she was in her twenties, and she went for a hike, and all of a sudden this guy comes out of nowhere on the trail. And is like, you know, I want to show you this bird. Like, check out these. And he had binoculars. And he was, like, trying to put the binoculars, like, a strap over her head, you know, to, like, put the binoculars. And she somehow, like, wriggled away and was like, bye, and, like, got away. Mm-hmm. And then found out later after the fact that, you know, this guy had been doing terrible things. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was just like, oh, my God. <laughs> like, these stories, they, um, like, what happened to you, what happened to this woman, what happens all the time all the time are really hard to wrap one's head around i cannot believe that people do this shit what is wrong with people yeah well there are you know there are sociopaths out there um obviously there's uh deeply rooted psychological problems it's funny it's funny um again no spoilers but when um in 2014, 30 years post-assault, and my PTSD at the sound of footsteps is coming back full force. And I think that's because my life was sort of unraveling again in 2014. My marriage was dying. Um, My mother was slipping into dementia. And uh, my then-husband and I had lost everything uh, due to the 2009-ish etc recession and a few choice uh poor mistakes but i i kind of became obsessed with my assailant and why 30 years later did i still have this ptsd at the sound of footsteps and when you uh, say the sound of footsteps it's like you hear him behind you that's mm-hmm. that's that's the trigger mm-hmm. but um I'm, I'm imagining like if you hear footsteps like when you're walking to the airport it's okay yeah 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 okay yeah now it is but like if i'm walking down I, and it's it's sort of come up again because uh, it, it the PTSD kicked in uh, in 2014. I, I think triggered by just going through a rough patch in my life, to to put it mildly. And then once I started writing the book, I had a few uh, instances. Uh, where I'd just be walking to work in the morning, safe street, bright daylight, and I hear someone jogging behind me, and I just would just lose my shit. Just go into like a karate pose. Yeah, well, just, and not even karate pose, but just a look of terror. And um, and so many men (laughs) jogging that who that when that happened to them and happened to me they're just like i am so so sorry to frighten you and it's like you know they did nothing wrong it's not it's it's not their fault they're going for a morning run right and uh and now it's interesting because now that i'm in book promo mode it's sort of coming up again and uh, i kind of feel bad asking you about all this oh god well (laughs) you couldn't ask me about my book then um uh, but no, but it's so it's it's coming up again. But now I'm in a place where I know it's going to go away again, and there's a huge sense of of comfort in that. But I've I've digressed terribly. We're talking about you know who does these things, and 
when I did become obsessed with my assailant 30 years post-assault and became determined to track him down and see whatever happened to him. Um, and I found out. Uh, and uh, I went to see my therapist. And, and I'm like, Joe, you're going to shit. Wait till I tell <laughs> you what happened, what I found out. And he, my, my therapist w- was just salivating. He's like, oh, well, um, he's from that kind of a family. Oh, you know, oh, oh, there were, oh, there were issues there. You can imagine. And, um, and, and so it was just, it was the funniest session ever because my therapist didn't want to talk about me. <laughs> he wanted to talk <laughs> about my attacker it's like, I mean, and, and it, what, triggered the circuitry to you know to 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 buzz out to make him what he became yeah i mean it's an endless fascination i read an article there's like an article that was floating around the internet about psychopaths and parents of psychopathic children yeah yeah. that is some terrifying shit (laughs) because it's like yeah you know like he's our second child he was born he's a beautiful baby and then you know, when, when he was four, he tried to, uh, stab his sister and, you know, like just constantly doing really evil stuff and they can't figure it out and they wind up getting a diagnosis. Like, this is a thing that can happen. Like, can you imagine? Like, no, <laughs> you know, like I, just, I really, I, I can't. And, um, and these are not like abusive as far as I know, you know, these, the, the way that it's rendered in the article, they're just like, you know, typical parents, but they have some genetic, mm-hmm. you know, history in their family of like, there was an uncle or there was a great grandfather who you know went to prison or something like that and so they try to they try to figure out you know what's happening in the in the biology yeah so it's it's scary and uh i guess you just have to hope you don't run into one you know and if you do you have the wherewithal to fight back and scream well and and then you know get go from victim to survivor um and that's that's an that's an important journey i mean bad things happen um in this context they happen to women more than they happen to men but not not exclusively and that's that's the journey is is figuring it out and how do i not be terrified anymore how do i get over my fear of the dark at age 19 that 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 i developed um and that's and that's the interesting thing and and when i was first playing around with the idea of writing this book and i would talk to people mostly women uh about what this might be book was about so many of them said yeah something like that happened to me too and they used the words Me Too. And this was several years before the Me Too, the hashtag Me Too movement broke. And that, so then they would share their version of what happened to them. Um, and, you know, all, you know, huge range of awful experiences. And there was kind of, I like to think a sense of an unburdening in sharing your your story with with someone else, and it was a huge motivator to write this book to say, 
yeah, this this matters. This this isn't something that just happened to me. So yeah, it's interesting to me. Um, this is a story that that matters, and uh, it's a way to let people, and again, primarily women, know that there are a lot of different ways to heal. And uh, and then obviously with the research that I did uh, beginning in 2014 and going back to the scene of the crime, literally, uh, and all, all the things I found out obviously made it just with all the twists and turns, you know, it was a, it's an interesting story. Did you, when you got this urge to find out what had ever happened or become of your attacker, uh, was that when the book idea started to percolate or did it happen after? Uh, the book idea started to percolate in about 2013 and then I just, I did nothing because I was just sort of, I was just filled with self doubt. I doubted the story. I doubted that it was of interest to anyone but me. And then in 2014, when the PTSD, when I'm out jogging and I hear another jogger behind me started, that's when I started kind of getting obsessed with why, why is this still happening post 30 years later and wondering what, then wondering what happened to my assailant. And, uh, so I think it was 2014 that I started writing the book and doing the research and, uh, you know, the journey of getting a 1984 police report, you know, a 30 year old, a 30 year old pre-internet event. Uh, uh, so I, you know, I kind of, I think the writing process really began with the research in 2014. And then what about like, I, I'm, I've been having conversations on this show, uh, recently and in my life talking about trauma. Mm-hmm. It, it touches us all. And I think for you, it's an extreme example, um, because it's so, there's so much threat <laughs> to mm-hmm. your, to your person. Um, so I'm curious, like when it comes to PTSD and the lingering effects, like what does happen physiologically to people in those moments neurologically, like what's imprinting itself, you know, like, uh, obviously it's imprinting itself deeply, uh, and it's a memory that stays with you and it's a feeling that stays with you, but I, do you know what I'm saying? Like, I'm wondering, mm-hmm. like, what does the body do? Like, yeah. What does the body do when these things happen? Yeah. And I, I obviously did some reading and research about PTSD in, back in 2014 when I was kind of determining how much of a component of that should be. Should I have two chapters on the 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 neurology of PTSD, uh, that ended up not happening. I think I describe PTSD, uh, its effects in a couple of paragraphs, uh, because the, the science of it just wasn't fitting, fitting in the book. Um, but my unscientific belief is that We'll, we as human beings will do anything to avoid pain. And so to do that, 
our mind will press it down, press it down, press it down. Whatever whatever your traumatic event is, losing your life savings, finding out that your spouse of 10 years has been cheating on you, uh, being assaulted, uh, suffering a humiliation, losing your job, whatever um, source of pain, if you push it down, your body is eventually going to revolt. Right. And so I think that's my, you know, unscientific analysis of it. It's like the way through is through. Like you got yeah. you got to deal with it. Yeah. Yeah. And um but you know, I think I think that we humans are really good at trying to avoid that and maybe eventually we'll find the way through by going through. May eventually we'll go there, but we're going to avoid it like the plague. At least that's me. And I don't know like cuz this is the thing I completely agree. Um, maybe I just haven't been through. I mean, I've been through some shit. I think like, like some of the grief I experienced in my early adulthood, I understand this now retroactively. Mm-hmm. Like I spent my twenties writing a novel, essentially. That was basically me trying to work through the grief, but I didn't, when I set out to write it, I don't know how explicitly I was thinking about it, but I was working through it. And it really did help. Um, I didn't go to talk therapy or anything, but I wrote a book and struggled with it for years and years and was kind of, you know, neck deep in all that subject matter for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think now I see it more clearly as a response to trauma, you know, but it wasn't something that like I, at that age or that stage of my life had like, I didn't have my bearings. I didn't know right. that that was what I was doing. <laughs> right. Yeah. And it's interesting. You, you talk about, you say that stage of your life. When I was working on early drafts of this book, uh, I was writing the pages post-assault and how a lot of my inability to navigate this new world, uh, you know, of, of fear, uh, was impeded by my own naivete and my own lack of life experience. And it was interesting because one of my uh, good friends, my one of my quote-unquote trusted readers, wrote in the margin, I don't get it. At, by the time I was 19, uh, you know, two high school friends had committed suicide. Uh, six other friends had died in various car accidents. Oh this had happened. This had happened. And, uh, and, and so he had a very different perspective of my work. Like it was like, you, you know, he wasn't being insensitive and saying, get over it. Uh, but, but, it, you know, people have different levels of trauma in their early lives. And I was just one of those lucky people, uh, had, you know, came from a very working class home, but I was, I was very sheltered and nothing. I I had no experience with death or, or trauma of any kind. And, uh, so, you know, that I'm sure that shaped my experience and, you know, going back to you talking about how, how young you were and yeah i mean that's the thing like you talk about trauma like i think everybody it imprints itself on everybody at some point right it just depends when so 
you know, there are, uh, there are people who they get to age 30. They've never lost anybody. They mm -hmm. still have all four grandparents and life has been, but eventually it's going to get you. Yeah. If you live long enough. Right. That's just life. Right. Um, and it, you know, it'll come in different forms, but uh, I think, you know, a question I would pose to you, um, is like, do you ever get over it or do you learn how to relate to it better? Do you know what I'm saying? Like, it doesn't seem like something, uh, that you ever fully are released from, but I think you have to find healthier ways of understanding it and recognizing it and relating to it. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, I, I, th I think that makes sense. I, everybody's post-trauma journey is different, but, and, you know, and if you asked me, uh, Karen, do you wish this never happened to you? Um, I think I would, I would hesitate. It was a, it was an awful experience. It was terrifying, but it's a big component of who I am today. And, um, I think I'm a pretty compassionate person. And I think that I search for the humanity in everyone. And I basically like myself. And all of that is because of all of my life experiences, um, including the really horrible ones. So when you say search for humanity in everyone, does that include your attacker? <laughs> um, I'm, I'm struggling with that. I guess, I guess the answer is, is yes. Um, uh, I, I, there's a point in the book where, um, once I tracked him down and found his name, which was something I'd let go of years before, um, and found out his situation, uh, and I say this in the book, um, you know, and I Google and I find out all this stuff, find out stuff about his family. And, and I say, but there are questions that Google doesn't have an answer to. How did this person become this way? Um, again, going back to what you're saying, was it, was it biology? Yeah. Was it a trauma from childhood? Does his you know what what is his relationship with his family was he now? was he abused like right like right. The, i think the the soft-hearted part of me is always looking for that like right. what happened is this a cycle of abuse that's repeating itself and i think what terrifies me most is this idea that it's like he's just a bad seed right there's evil in the world you know that whole line of thinking yeah. i think like the more I don't know the, like for lack of a better way of putting it, like the more Buddhist side of me, it's like, there's always like reasons, mm -hmm. you know, if you go back deeply enough, um, you know, it's like the perpetuation of, of human suffering and some kind of cycle. And I think like my best self, I'm, I'm sort of always leaning toward trying to find a way to compassion, but it's really easy to say when you're not the victim or you're like your close loved one is not the victim something like really awful and violent happens to somebody you care about or happens to you. Like, who am I to say, well, you need to look deeply into their history and forgive right. and all this stuff. It's right. like, Hey, you know, 
I think you've got to give people space to sort things out on their own terms. Of course, of course. And I, I think another place I've learned compassion is from my eight years as a criminal, criminal defense lawyer, because I came face to face with some wonderful human beings who had done some terrible, terrible shit, or who had just fucked up again and again and again, and they didn't have a safety net. And so that was that was a very interesting lesson because you you get you get a client um most of my work 99.9% of my work was court appointed work so um i was in private practice but when the public defender's office had a conflict of interest or was just too overloaded they would give cases to uh private attorneys on this list so you get your court paperwork you go to the jail you don't know what you're going to find you know you might find um a a reasonable client, you might find, a, you know, an, a complete asshole, um, one of those people who's always the victim, nothing's ever their fault. And, um, uh, and so, so often I would, you know, and I'd see the paperwork and it's like, oh, great, assault with a deadly weapon. And, you know, victims, a woman, um, broad daylight in a bank parking lot and uh and it's a strong arm robbery too and you know you get that paperwork and you're like oh god yeah and and then you go in and you meet the client and you see a real human being and who's who's just you know like just a regular a regular guy and not and, the boogeyman right and and it's just it's the most bizarre experience. And there's a portion in the book where I just, I summarize um, and talk about some of like, you know, these hilarious stories with my clients and how I fell in love with my clients. And I say not sexual love, um, but what else can you call it? But love when 30 years, not 30 years, but uh, since the 90s, um, 25 years later, you still think about that client and you wonder, are they still are they still funny and witty? Are they still in prison? Are they still addicted? Um, uh, and, you know, these people really, really touched my life. Well, you know, it's funny that you talk about this um, path that you took, which seems a little bit unconventional to become a defense attorney for the kinds of, of men in particular who have committed crimes not dissimilar to the one that was uh, perpetrated against you. Right. Um, I was like reading about the Dalai Lama <laughs> uh, and this woman who I want to say went to Berkeley and had been the victim of abuse in her youth had this like, you know, she was dead set on becoming a prosecutor. Like she was like, I'm going to put the bad guys away. It seems like a normal reaction. Mm -hmm. You know, I've suffered this injustice and now it's my mission to make it right in the world for others. Yeah. Not a bad idea. And so she's Buddhist or, you know, whatever. And she goes over to India and she's in Dharamsala and she somehow gets a private audience with the Dalai Lama. Wow. And she walks in 
And she starts to tell him what happened to her and she starts to sob. And she's like, this happened to me and I'm going to become an, you know, an attorney. That's my mission. You know, I'm going to help people. And he didn't say anything until she was kind of done. And then he said, I think at the end of it, he's like, are you ready to be done suffering or something to that effect? And she said, yeah. And he's like, okay. He's like, but in order for you to be released from your suffering, you can be an attorney, but you have to help the kind of people that hurt you. Wow. So you took a good path according to the Dalai Lama. You know, like yeah. it, it's really, I mean, it makes some sense. It's a hard road, but I think if you can find humanity in these kinds of people, uh, most of the time anyway, it does release you a little bit from the boogeyman in your mind. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, uh, I, I, abs- oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And um, unlike this woman you just described, um, I didn't uh, have this big turnaround from a conversation with the Dalai Lama. <laughs> um, and it was What's more just, you? <laughs> you know, right? And it was just more kind of twists of fate, uh, which I describe in the book, that, that led me onto that path. And then once I got on the path, I. I, I liked it and I found a voice and it's also a more interesting story, right? Um, I went to law school, had the intention of becoming a prosecutor, putting away the bad guys. And, um, and if that had happened, you know, that's a fine life. I know lots of prosecutors, um, but it would be kind of like, a really boring story. I mean, that's like what you expect to happen. The more interesting story is the woman who is a victim of a violent assault, um, who goes through the criminal justice system as a young, naive woman, uh, has a very awful experience um, in in that system. And then that woman come, turns around years later and she is representing people accused of terrible things and i'm seeing a t- i'm seeing a tv series here <laughs> um she's from your lips to to god's ears by the way brad yeah. um uh it's just it's just a more interesting story uh and then uh and yeah, you know, my clients touched my life in so many interesting ways. I mean, I, I talk in the book about how there's the, I had a client who claimed he had, he couldn't go to jail. And he's like, Karen, you got to keep me out of custody. And I'm like, you know, sorry, I'm not a magician, you know? And he's like, but I have Tourette's and I'm going to yell out, cunt, motherfucker, and I'm going to get a beat down. And, um, of course, he could never produce <laughs> the paperwork from his doctor um, uh, uh, to, uh, to to validate that. Because I'm like, okay, you got that? I, I can keep you out of jail, but the judge isn't just going to take our word for it. So, like, uh, stories like that, um, you know, the um, uh, I share in the book the, the, the scene where um, I'm in trial and... My client's charged with uh, 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 possession of cocaine with the intent to distribute. And he had a couple duffel bags on him. And uh, 
one had the cocaine and the packaging materials and some cash and, you know, basically the resume of, you know, a cocaine dealer. And then the other duffel bag that had no identification on it had a, a bunch of colorful, sticky dildos in it. And um, TMI, sorry. Sounds like a great party. <laughs> And the prosecutor wanted to admit the dildos into evidence for no reason. There was no legal reason. They didn't tie my client to the cocaine at all. But she wanted to do it just to get in like this. That's kind of prejudicial because it made my client look like this perv. And so I share a scene in the book where we're in chambers and we're with the um, the grandfatherly deep voice judge right out of central casting and uh he's like madam prosecutor what's the relevance of the dildos and uh <laughs> uh uh and she, and she has no good answer and he's, he's saying no ms thomas is right ms thomas is right the dildos stay out <laughs> <laughs> congratulations so, uh, thank you and uh i think he he, uh, I think he walked too. So oh, yay me. Look at you. <laughs> uh, so um, let's talk about a little bit about like where you're from, mm -hmm. um, like childhood. You said you were raised working class, uh, but like whereabouts? Uh, in in San Diego, in uh, in East San Diego, uh, I went to uh, Crawford High School, which anyone who's listening from the San Diego area will sort of suck in their breath and say, wow, Karen, were you in a gang? Um, because now it's the, the neighborhood uh, has gone sort of from, has still a working class component, but it's, uh, there's a big criminal society in, in the neighborhood that I grew up in. And uh, uh, yeah, my dad was a career uh, postal worker. Uh, started out as a mailman and a very, very stable environment. My mom uh, was the stay-home PTA Girl Scout leader mom. Uh, wonderful, simple childhood filled with books. I was a total nerd. Um, Any siblings? I have a half-sister who is 19 years older than me. Okay. And uh, so, so really, no, she was married and out of the house by the time I was, by the time I was born. And she got married at 19? At 19. Yeah. Oh, so wow. this was, this was in uh, the mid to late sixties. Yeah, so so yeah, a, that's kind of, that was sort of what you did back then. Right. And uh, the, and so, you know, so I've been in therapy my, my whole life for one thing or another and after uh, the assault after the assault and uh you know therapists what's what's the first question they ask you how what how is your childhood and so my answer has always been great perfect nothing pretty vanilla but um my mom she had a really really fucked up childhood and so she has always been a tremendously anxious, nervous person. And I'm like, uh, do you think any of that could have seeped out into me? <laughs> the answer is yes. 
you may go now. Problem solved. Well, I say that, so. you know, I worry about that as a parent. You know, you have, you're trying to hold everything together, mm-hmm. you know, and you're trying to uh, work and, and earn a living and you're trying to spend time with your kids and you're trying to take care of yourself a little bit so mm-hmm. that you can be at your best. And it's hard to balance it all. And then you're like, God, if I have stuff going on, like if I'm worried about things or I'm stressed or I'm anxious or I'm depressed or any of the things that come up in a human life, you do worry. You're like, is this going to rub off on the, the kids? And even if there's untended stuff, you know, that's buried, that isn't right. necessarily surfacing. Right. I think kids pick up on that too. Of course they do. And, you know, it's, and it's an interesting situation because, yeah, you can work on yourself and you can be the best self that you can be, but your kids are still getting you and you're human. So you have flaws, your wife has flaws, and your kids are going to get what they get. I mean, and it's like, what are you supposed to, what are you supposed to do? I mean, all you can do is the best you can. That's what I was going to say. Yeah. And it's never going to be, it's never going to be perfect. I think you just gotta, I mean, I try, just try to be steady, try to be there. Like, you know, if I fuck up, I'm, I'm usually like, I'm really sorry. Like, that's what, that's a good thing to say as a parent, hopefully. Mm. Like, I'll just be honest. I tell my daughter sometimes, I'm like, your dad's doing the best he can. <laughs> and she's like, it's okay, dad. Like, she actually gets it. I think kids, even at age eight um, or nine or whatever, you know, she's pretty receptive. Uh, but you just, you want about a thousand. You want to try to do a great job. Of course. But it's such a hard job. I have yeah. no idea. And, you know, you talk about your mom and you talk about generational differences, like mm-hmm. your, your half-sister getting married at 19. You know, for um, our parents' generation, that generation was just starting to scratch the surface of psychotherapy and dealing with things like, you know, a really difficult childhood and really pronounced anxiety uh, in a medical context. That was very new and not very common at all, especially for working class folk. Totally. Like they don't have the tools. You know, nobody had like, uh, you know, unless they were very lucky and had some access to, you know, resources. Yeah. And and it's interesting because even now, just in the last few years, has it become an acceptable part of the lexicon, if you will, to use the term anxiety, to say, I'm anxious, I have a problem with anxiety, Brad. And to be able to say that and not keep it in a hole and... uh, um, you know, I think that's a beautiful thing that people are able to say, hey, yeah, I've got an anxiety problem and I'm doing my best. That, that alone has some therapeutic value. Absolutely. The, to, there's, you know, the shame. Yeah. We're well, so ashamed of so much. And that and just like having a name for it. Yeah. You know, before it was just like, oh, I've, I'm, I'm edgy or, you know, they, they, all these different ways of kind of talking around it. But when you medicalize it a little bit and you give people kind of a, uh, a lingua franca like hopefully, you know, you can find some common ground with other people who are dealing with similar stuff and it just doesn't have to be this weird thing, right? you know, that you attach all this shame to. Right. What about, um, in addition to talk therapy, because it sounds like that's been, um, you know, kind of a principal approach for you and has done you a lot of good. Mm-hmm. I would argue, and I think you probably agree that the work you did as a defense attorney was also hugely therapeutic like for that decade, 
even though you didn't necessarily go into it like with that idea. Right. Um, but what about like, I've been reading about like alternative therapies, like people use psychedelics, they'll go to like an ayahuasca circle and like, they'll have this intense experience where, or like MDMA with like soldiers who are suffering from PTSD in particular. Mm -hmm. Have you, have you been interested in that sort of stuff? Um, uh, just recently, um, I've become interested in, uh, uh, microdosing with um with can cannabis and uh and trying that because a lot of friends of mine have said listen because i was never a marijuana person it just it just wasn't my thing i would just clam up and uh so you know back in the day it just wasn't my drug of choice in berkeley you were you're just like i'm oh you know. i know <laughs> i was like the one percent one percent i know um but but a lot of friends have said to me, no, you've got to get into this. There are so many different strains now. And, you know, just microdose, take a hit throughout the day. And um, so I'm looking into that now. Um, I think that there's going to be some experimentation involved. It's like, it's like um, an antidepressant, right? The first one your doctor prescribes may not be the one that works for you. It really is different so. and you got to be careful when you're eating it with dosages. That's like my big hang up because I'm very sensitive. Mm -hmm. So it's like I take the littlest bit and I'm like, oh my God, like I'm, I have Alzheimer's now for like <laughs> four hours. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And there, yeah. And, it, and it's like, oh, there goes the productivity of my day. But yeah, I'm very, I'm very interested in that. And I'm interested in, you know, uh, I'm such a hypocrite uh, right now, um, but in 2018, I got into yoga, and I don't mean crazy into it. I mean, like, I'd go religiously once a week, usually two times a week, and I don't know what it did for my body um, because it was pretty low-key, low but what it did for my mind was tremendous. No, I, I, my, the, my decade of trauma recovery in my twenties, six or seven days a week, I did yoga. Yeah. That's, and I couldn't, yeah. I was like, I just like this after I write. It's like a nice ritual. It was like, a, I'd write, I'd work and then I, or I'd have class. And then, uh, cause I was in graduate school and then I would just do this class. I was new to LA. I don't know why I just kept going mm -hmm. and I had a bad low back and it was helping with mm -hmm. that. But it, the, the real reason I was going is because I was making me feel better. Yeah. And so, okay. And so here's, here's the punchline to my story. I'm doing this. I've finally gotten into it. I have a great year, really, really consistent. Uh, it's June, 2019 now, and I've gone to yoga once this year. <laughs> so it's like, okay, Karen, you're a fucking genius that you find this thing that's really working for you. So let's just stop doing it. You know, you're good now. You've got this figured out. Yeah. You're all done. You've crossed the finish line. Well, but it, you know, in your defense, it, it's hard to make time for these things. Yeah. You know, you like, it's just, life is busy and it's expensive too. Oh, I know. Like I, I'm like, Oh my God. Like, you know, I go once a week now. It's I've, you know, I've I had to dial it way back because of kids and life and work and stuff. But yeah. Um, back when I needed it, it was awesome. Um, and again, it's one of those things I'm looking at through the rearview mirror. Like, that's kind of weird that I did that much yoga, but it was, I think good it was, weird. I was a good weird. It was helpful. Yeah. It, I think it was part of the program that helped me, uh, untangle a little bit. Yeah. And, uh, I always joke, it's like a bong hit without the paranoia. You know? 
Like exactly. you walk out of there sort of like, oh, you know. Like oh, yeah. It's like there's no drug on the planet that's as good as walking out of yoga. I think, yeah, I think yeah. so. I think yeah. so. so. So maybe I'll go again. You should. And, uh, <laughs> I, and you know, I'm just, I'm fascinated because, um, you know, having this awareness of how everybody is touched by trauma to greater and lesser extents. Um, and it's just, it's a defining thing. Everybody's got those defining experiences and stories mm -hmm. that they are going to wrestle with. It seems mm -hmm. to be the nature of human existence. And I guess I'm fascinated with like, how do we take care of this stuff most effectively? Take care of our own individual stuff, you mean? And each other. Yeah. Like our suffering, you know, but that, that those like very intense sufferings mm -hmm. the, that, uh, that linger and that become organizing principles for our lives. You know, like what's the best way to relate to them? I think talk therapy is great. I think support groups are probably great if you can find one where people who have similar experiences are able to come together. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that like, that's like Alcoholics Anonymous, you know, is that's that a basic model. Yeah. Um, I think exercise, some sort of spiritual thing. Like, do you have anything, any, like any kind of uh, spiritual life? Uh, very much so. Um, and I've also backburnered that recently too. Good, um, good. So no <laughs> yoga. <laughs> no, no spiritual practice. Um, <laughs> Uh, uh, yeah, so, um, I, I do have, I do have a spiritual, uh, practice. Um, I've been ignoring it lately. Um, what were you raised with? Were you a Christian raised? I was raised with nothing. Um, uh, I went to, this is, you know, this is the era I grew up in. It's the seventies. Two guys carrying Bibles show up on the door saying, hey, um, you know, we're with whatever church and uh, we have a van and we'd be happy to pick your kid up um, for Sunday school every Sunday morning. And so my mom's like, great. <laughs> so, like, you know, there's just these two strangers that show up at the door. I get in there the next day they come, I get in their van, da, 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 there's some other kids and they were legit. They took me to Sunday school. Nothing happened. But isn't that hilarious? Those I mean, different it's times. different times. Um, but I, I digress. Um, but, you know, I went to that church. I don't even it was, you know, Joe Average Christian, I would call it. And then in my early 30s, I became involved in, um, it's called, it has the word science in it, so everybody's going to freak out, but uh, Science of Mind, uh, Ernest Holmes was the founder of the church, and the basic principle is that the way you, you don't communicate with God with like a, a petitionary prayer, you don't go Please, God, I really need some money to pay my rent. Uh, you so say, I'm doing it wrong. <laughs> yeah. So you say, uh, God is all there is. I am one with God. What I know is that, um, you know, I will have the money to pay my rent. Uh, with loving thanks, I release my word into the universe, knowing that it is done. Amen. And and it's very it's a religion where it's very uh, flexible. You don't have to use the phrase God because that freaks a lot of people out. You can say the universe. You can say Mother, Father, God. Sounds sort of like uh, Unitarian. Yeah, I think I think it is. Is similar. there a priest? I think 
There's um, there's a minister. There is, okay. Because yeah. like, I think in Unitarianism, like parishioners take turns being the priest. Oh, okay. There's not like a, a figurehead or a leader, you yeah. know. Yeah. Um, but there's nothing weird about it. It's good. Like, no, I, I've it's never... not weird. No, because no, people hear the word science and they think Christian science. They think Scientology. And, but, that's, but that's my religion. Now, again, how how well am I practicing it? That's fluctuated uh, in, in my life. And right now I'm apparently, as I'm learning and talking to you, Brad, that um, <laughs> I'm not uh, really engaging in good self-care spiritually. Yeah. So, I mean, it go, go comes figure. and goes. I think maybe, you know, when you need it, you, you know, you tend to go back to it. And then when things are relatively stable, it's not as, as urgent. Right. You're like, I got this. I got this. But the, see, the problem is that like, I think you need to try to like strengthen your muscles when things are relatively stable so that when the shit hits the fan, you're ready. Right. You know? Right. I feel like if you're trying to do it once you really need it, sometimes it's like, you know, it's too much. Does that make sense? Ab- absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, so let's talk about, uh, the writing process. This is, is this your first book? Uh, no, it's my third. My first was a how-to business writing guide that was published in 2011. It's called Before Hitting Send. And uh, it's. Uh, I also had my broker's license at that time, and my ex-husband uh, is a real estate agent. And so it's tailored toward the real estate industry, but it's basically a how-to writing, how-to uh write book for business. But not like a literary book. Not at all. And then in 2015, I released a collection of short stories called The Secret Games of Words. And then uh, now uh, we have the memoir, What a Body Remembers. Okay. So you had, you had some chops and had been practicing and doing the writing, but like, how does it look for you day to day? Like, how do you work? Well, Right now I'm in book promotion mode and so I'm doing some guest articles places so it's so it's a little bit of a scramble and I'm more deadline oriented but when things settle down and I start looking at the next project I'll do what I've always done which is work in the morning I'm a morning writer and I have, I give myself X number of button chair hours, hopefully four, if I can't pull that off, uh, maximum of three. And I just, I write, I don't, I don't edit myself. I just do my best. I'm a big fan of the Anne Lamott uh, mantra, shitty first drafts. And then I go back and whether it's a short story, an essay, a chapter, I just edit and edit and edit and edit and generate probably, you know, in some cases, literally hundreds of drafts. And I, it, it must be the most uh, inefficient way to write, but it's the only way I know how to do it. And so that's that's what I do. Yeah. And so, and you're giving yourself time to, to promote this one. Yeah. And then you'll go back. Do you know what you're going to write next? Uh, I have a, a novel that, uh, was pretty far along. 
uh, at least in terms of page count, <laughs> um, uh, that I backburnered uh, in 2014 when I turned to What a Body Remembers in earnest. And my thinking at the time was, this is going to be so easy. These memoirists have such a racket. They're just writing down what actually happened. How hard can that be? Right. And um, so I thought, I'm going to bang this out, have this memoir done in like four months, and then I'll go back to the novel. Well, you know, five years later, here we are. <laughs> and um, so I've pulled out the novel, which is um, like in two red wells. Like I literally think I have like 700 pages um, and I pulled it out and it, you know, it was one of those things where you're like, yeah, this is pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. And then it's like, oh Lord. And then, you know, this is pure crap. This whole section needs to go. What was I thinking? And then like you see, uh, this is, this is how I write, but like I have a all bold, uh, in brackets, all caps note to myself, need a really good line right here. <laughs> <laughs> Don't we all? <laughs> so, uh, so that's that's how I write. Okay. Well, I mean, that so, seems that sounds pretty uh, pretty familiar. Yeah. There's no. I mean, there's only so many different ways to skin the cat. You got to just do the work. Yeah, and it is it is work. Um, uh, and non writers don't don't really get it. I don't think. I think it can be easy to convince yourself, just as you did with your memoir, that you just sit down and it just flows out of you. You know, the actual physical act of writing. I always, I, I will sometimes do a pantomime to make this point with people where I'm like, most people think it looks like this. And I'll sit there and like, pretend like I'm having like a Jack Kerouac, like speedy, you know, moment of epiphany. But really what it, it looks like is just sitting in front of a computer, totally inert, staring, and then maybe typing for like five seconds and then hitting delete a hundred times and then typing for like 10 seconds. It's just like this fits and starts. Yeah. And occasionally there will be a burst, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. Oh, for sure. And then, and I don't know about you, but on, you know, you have good days and you have bad days. And on my bad days where just nothing's coming, I, I kind of, I feel panicked. Like, oh, I'm, I don't have a word to say about anything in the universe. I don't have one interesting thing to say. And, um, and then I, you know, I kind of beat myself up and I'm kind of grumpy that day. And then another interesting thing that's been happening to me lately in writing this book and then in doing some essays is when I'm having a good day and I'm in the zone and you do that thing where you like look up and, and realize, oh, there's this wall right here. Oh, I'm sitting in a chair. Oh, there's my cat right there. You've just, you've just left the real world and then you come back into it. And I, I feel really exhausted. And then I almost feel, um, depression. Um, is that, does that ever happen to you? But yeah, it, I know it, the feeling yeah. I've, I've said like, you know, writing, even though you, you know, you're sitting in a chair typically, uh, for hours on end is exhausting, physically exhausting it work. Is. Like you are depleted if you're re if you're really in, you know, in it, in a concentrated way, uh, for an extended period of time, it takes a lot out of you. The other thing I would say is that people often presume or assume that it's lonely. Like, you know, it's so lonely to be a writer, but I think when you're really in it and the characters or the people in your book 
are, you know, are really there with you, it doesn't feel lonely. On the good days, it's not lonely. On the right. bad, on the bad days, it's lonely as hell. Right, right. <laughs> I was gonna, I was gonna chime in and say exactly that. I feel, I feel the loneliness uh, a lot. Is this what you're doing? I mean, like, are you not practicing law anymore? I'm taking a break from practicing law, and uh, I'm gonna ride that way for as long as I can pull it off. Yeah, and uh, uh, but you know. Uh, Writing doesn't always pay the bills. It's hard, but it can be. Some people do it. And yeah, some people do. It's good to have that law degree in your back pocket. If I ever run into any trouble, can I call you? Just, Absolutely. You know, and I you... might pick up. <laughs> I might pick up. <laughs> uh, well, look, uh, congratulations uh, on this book. I know it's never easy to write a book, but especially one where you're going back through and working through really tough stuff. That's hard. Mm -hmm. So kudos to you for seeing, um, seeing it all the way to the end. Uh, congratulations on the publication. I'm glad that we get to uh, spotlight it in the book club. And uh, I wish you the best of luck on the novel that's coming. We'll see. Mate, we will see. T TBD. <laughs> TBD, yeah. All right. All right. Well, it's nice to meet you. Nice to meet you, Brad. Thanks. Okay. That is my conversation with Karen Stefano. Her new book is called What a Body Remembers, a Memoir of sexual assault and its aftermath it is available now from rare bird books you can find karen online her website is stefanokaren.com and she is on twitter her handle over there is at kstefano1 what a body remembers a memoir of sexual assault and its aftermath out there now from rare bird books go get your copy now Thank you to Kill Rockstars and the band Stereo Total, as always, for the theme song music. Thank you to Tiger in My Tank for the interstitial music. If you would like to write to me, the address is letters at otherppl.com. Tell me a story. Tell me what you think about the program. Offer some kind of response. If you would like to transcribe an episode, I am recruiting a volunteer army to help me get every episode of this program transcribed. I've had... Over a hundred volunteers so far, but I need about three times that number. Are you out there? Can you help with one episode? If like three or four hundred of you all did one episode, this would be done. Likewise, if you would like to help me uh, post all of these transcripts, that's another job. It's hard for one person to do 600 posts, if that makes sense. So if you've got time on your hands, if you're bedridden, <laughs> uh, or I don't know just like the idea of helping you need an internship i don't know i mean i can throw you a few bucks but i can't like i can't pay like a wage you know that's why i don't ask so basically it's just like uh good samaritan hoping for a good samaritan i don't know whatever Don't forget about the Other People app. This program has its own official app. It's available for free. Go get the app, the Other People with Brad Listy app. It's available where apps are available. So next week on the program, guess who I have? Brett Easton Ellis was here. So get ready for that. <laughs>